This is a series of tape recordings made at the chapter of the open book under the covering title Spotlight and this is number seven of the series. We have called this series Spotlight because there's no continuance necessarily although they're all founded upon scripture and will all focus our attention either beginning, middle or end on the person and work of Christ. And this evening I want to deal with that which is a perennial. It keeps on cropping up in one religious paper or another and that is that James contradicts Paul in the teaching concerning justification. We can understand and perhaps forgive Martin Luther who when he saw the glorious teaching of justification by faith without works with all the contention and strife going on about him, that he should dismiss James, as he called James, of an epistle of straw. But he wasn't right. That's not justified on the part of anybody. And so I felt this, this evening, as we have an opportunity, this is one meeting out of many, it might be useful just to consider the teaching of Scripture as it's embedded in Paul's great witness and as it's embedded in James. Now, in order to demonstrate my point of view, I turn aside for a moment. I'm not fooling. I'm only just trying to help you to follow the line that I believe is a correct one. I remember that when Dr. Bullinger was rather criticised a bit because of his care to discover the structure, to consider the actual meaning of the Hebrew or the Greek word, and so on, he used a very old stock argument, but he turned to the one who criticised him. He said, oh, you believe anything that's in the Scriptures? Yes. He said, well, Judas went and hanged himself. Go down, do likewise. That's Scripture. You see, if you don't exercise any thought about it, any reason about it, you can bring together any part of Scripture and make absolute nonsense, if not complete untruth. Descending to our mundane affairs, J.N.W. Turner was sitting painting one day and somebody came up behind him and watched him and said, well, how much would you charge for that? He said, oh, 50 guineas. Hmm. He said, it's a lot for a piece of paint, is it? Oh, he says, it's paint you're talking about. He picked up a, a little tube all screwed up. He said, what would they give me for that? Don't you see? They were not arguing from the same premises. This man was arguing from the fact that he was using paint and his own dexterity and genius was involved and the other man was just looking at so much paint. Now I've used the expression they were arguing from different premises. And as our brother from Aberdeen uh, is here or near Aberdeen, he'll know Aberdeen better than I do, he will know that opposite the university there are buildings and very narrow courts, very narrow range going through. And on one occasion a couple of professors leaving the university entered this narrow lane and right up the top there there was a lady and up the top there was another lady with their two windows open arguing the point with very loud voices. And one professor said to the other, they'll never agree. They're not arguing from the same premises. Now most of us know that premises stands for a building but it also stands for a part of a logical statement. 
surmise means to guess, but premise means to state. And the premises is the statement which leads you to the conclusion. We owe to the Greek philosopher Socrates the syllogism, which may not be absolutely infallible, but is a tremendous help to test yourself and test what other people say as to how far they are logically correct. Here's the stock argument. All men are mortal. That's the premise. That's the premise. Socrates is a man. There's only one conclusion. Only one conclusion. If all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then Socrates is mortal. Did I say immortal? That was a slip. I'll say it again. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. There's no uh, possibility of avoiding it. Well, now, my feeling is that if folks would have only have looked at the premises that James used and the premises that Paul used, they would never have pitted one against the other. And as this will be an example, not only for this glorious teaching concerning justification, but for every problem you come up against in Scripture, I hope that this spotlight, picking that thought out this evening, will have a place in the scheme of things to help us to be clear with regard to our teaching and our definitions and the way in which we arrive at them. The Apostle Paul has made it very plain, and I think we'll start with him. We've read before this meeting, before this part of our meeting was being taped, we read Romans the fourth chapter. I won't read it again, but I'll read two verses. Romans the fourth chapter, verses four and five. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Well, that's true universally. If you work and you get a wage at the end of the week, unless you're a very impolite person, you may say thank you, but it's legally yours. He says, to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth whom? Justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for, imputed for, reckoned for. That term is used three different ways, even in this chapter. His faith is counted for righteousness. Well, that man's got nothing to boast of so far as he himself is concerned. He just believed what God said, and it was quickened, and he was given this righteous standing. Let Paul have another word to say by turning to the epistle to the Galatians chapter 5, which by the way was the epistle that Luther so endorsed and you can quite understand why in his struggle at the beginning of the Reformation. Galatians chapter 5 verse or we'll read the first four verses. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, 
and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. They can't be too explicit. You can't say it more definitely that so far as justification is concerned of an ungodly person who believes in Christ, there's no merit in it, there's no reward for him, there's no works that he can do, it's just a gift of God in sheer love and grace, and the whole credit goes to the Saviour. There's no need for me to stress this, for I'm certain that everyone in this chapel already knows that that is God's truth, and I trust that everyone who will listen to this a little later will be on the same lines too. Well now, how is it that there's been this difference? And how is it that James can be said to have a difference? Shall we just let James speak for himself? Good idea, you know, if you let a person speak for themselves instead of just you telling somebody else. James, second chapter. Of course, you want to read the whole chapter the whole book through, really, but we're on one particular aspect. James, the second chapter, verse, um, well, now shall we start, um, verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, I can see you rubbing your hands, I'm not speaking of anybody I know, you know, just rubbing your hands up, or departed peace. Be ye warmed and filled. Now, if you talk to a hungry, unclothed man like that, what good's that to him? You give him nothing. You say, oh, be ye warmed, be ye filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful for the body. What does it profit? What does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, but I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. And that's the basis, of course, of the whole teaching of Scripture. Thou believest there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe that. And tremble. You see, there's something more, isn't there? And you know, there are some folks who believe, but they don't go far enough. I've used the old argument before, I know, but it appeals to me again. When I was six years of age, I saw Blondin on his tightrope, doing the most hairbreadth things you could imagine. And one thing, he rode a bicycle across on the rope with a sack over his head. And he said to a man, do you believe I could take you across that rope on my back? He said, yes, sir. He said, will you let me do it? He said, not me. He believed that he could, but he wouldn't trust. You see, it's one thing just to believe a thing that's a statement, another thing to believe it, and it becomes something that links you with Christ and has to do with your 
standing before God. So we have this emphasis. Uh, James 2. But wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? Now here's the point. He's going to talk about Abraham. Ah, you say, well now, Paul spoke about Abraham, so now we'll, we'll be hearing the same passage and the same message. Will you? You just wait. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith perfected? Perfected? Yes, we'll see that again in a moment. And the scripture was fulfilled. The scripture was not merely written but fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness and an addition is given and he was called the friend of God. You see then, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, I spoke about the premises of an argument. Now, the premises of the argument of these two men are two different passages in the book of Genesis. Genesis 15 is the premises of Paul and Genesis 22 is the premises of James. And if you only get that in the back of your mind, they are not contradicting, they are supplementing. Shall we go back and just see the two passages? I think we must. Genesis 15. Abraham has been called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's a very old man. He's been promised the seed and he's beginning to question. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He just rescued Lot from being captured by an army. And God said, Don't be afraid, they won't come back. I am thy shield. But he also added, Thy exceeding great reward. And he said, Well, Reward. What do I, what, what's a reward to me? I'm very old. I've got neither chick nor child. And God said, and he said, the only one who's going to be my heir is this Eliezer, the steward. He's a decent man, but, you know. So let him speak for himself. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless. And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. You can see his feeling, don't you? I know that Eliezer will reap the reward, but I can child this. Abraham said, Behold, thou hast given, and behold, um, thou hast given me no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Now, a starlight night here is wonderful. A starlight out on one of the moors where there's no pall of smoke in this country is magnificent. But I understand that a starlight night out in the Bible East is a thing to be remembered. 
he, he said, he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou art able to number them. Well, you see, Abraham, he didn't know all about the computation of our astronomers today. They're piercing further and further into space. They're able to measure things that were immeasurable in Abraham's day. And the number is multiplying all the time. There seems to be no end to the starry heavens. But nevertheless, good enough, what Abraham saw was enough to stagger him, as it says. He staggered not, but it was a staggerer, wasn't it? So he says here, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if they be able to number them. He said unto him, So shall thy seed be. What was the consequence? And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Well, now I think a little bit further on, we read that the Lord said to Abraham, Walk before me, and be thou perfect. Walk before me, and be thou perfect. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean exactly the same as in common usage with us. The building up of this word means to take a thing to its legitimate conclusion, right to the end. I think perhaps, oh, that's in 17th, um, that's in the 22nd chapter, we're going to come to the perfect thing. But before we do that, let's look at the way in which perfecting is used in the New Testament in other connections because it will then demonstrate a little bit more clearly what is taking place between Paul's statement and James. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1. If you find I'm getting a bit mixed up and forgetting the passages, it's because I am not yet quite perfect. I, perhaps you don't need me to tell you that, but I'm just reminding you. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Here's a passage. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now lift those words out. Perfecting holiness, and it sounds almost blasphemy. Shakespeare speaks about gilding the lily and painting the rose as a figure. But to perfect holiness, whoever's going to perfect holiness? And it's this person that he's writing to, they've got a perfect holiness. Well, what does it mean? Let's look back. Because he says, therefore, of all the writers of the New Testament, watch out Paul's use of logical connections. Therefore, then, now then, and so on. So in this chapter which precedes, he says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion faith hath light with darkness, and there's Christ and Belial and the believer and an infidel, and so on, right the way down the chapter. Having therefore these promises, and the promises are 
and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, said the Lord. Having these promises, which are associated with holiness in practice, this is holiness in practice, isn't it? Be ye separate from this. Taking holiness to its logical conclusion is the idea of the word perfecting holiness. It doesn't mean improving it. But it's one thing to say, you know, friends, I most surely believe that sanctification is ours just on the same basis as justification, and it's true. But to sit there and say that's the end of it is to empty it of its meaning. Holiness is such a staggering word that it is very seldom used outside hymn books, Bibles, and meetings like this. I believe you could take the correspondence have been dictated all the way from here to the Bank of England and back on one side of Morgan and the other, and not one of them has dictated the word holiness, or the word holy, unless they're dealing with scriptural things. doesn't come in everyday life. This is something separate. So it's a staggering thought that you can perfect holiness. But the point is you can't improve it. But being put in that position, Christ is all sanctification. Well, how are you reacting to it? You say about this Christ being our sanctification. Would you look at the earlier reference in um, 1 Corinthians, verse 30. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Now this verse has within it a little particle, just two letters, T-E. And sometimes it's translated both, and sometimes you have to expand it a bit because of our English idiom will not always give you the correct meaning. So, I just give you as far as I can the sense of this passage using that little word T, which is not translated here. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, as well as redemption. You might try to put the little tree in another place and split it in a different way. But I think this gives you the idea of the Apostle. He said, look, I know you believe in redemption for you're a saved people and you accepted Christ as your Passover sacrifice for you. He writes to them so. But he said, just in the same way, Christ is your justification. Christ is your sanctification. But of all the unsanctified churches in their attitude and their manner of life, it's the Corinthian church. Well, they were a terrible mixed up lot with regard to their attitude to sexual things and he had to call them all sorts of names. Yet they were sanctified. They were sanctified in Christ, but they hadn't taken it to its complete end as he wrote to the same church later on being sanctified in Christ and having this holiness before God in him is one thing. But don't you think it ought to operate as a manifest thing in your life? You'll never reach the high standard, of course, that is demanded of God. But at least you will show winning. Even in our own marvellous epistle to the Ephesians, with all its wonderful blessings in heavenly places and all the teaching that we rejoice in, it falls into two equal parts. 
three chapters to reveal the marvels of the mystery and three chapters to urge you to walk worthy of such a calling and speaks about your home life and the life in business and the bringing up of children and all things to do with down here as well as up there. And so we have this emphasis with regard to the two aspects of justification. Paul's stress on justification by faith without works. James' stress on justification with works to show it's true. Now we haven't given the passage in Genesis yet, which was the premises of James' argument, uh, but you, re- you remember that he said that what took place in Genesis 2 fulfill what took place in Genesis 15. So let's come back, shall we, to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now the word tempt has got two meanings. In the word attempt, there's no idea of tempting you to do evil, it's testing. And that's the meaning of the word. Not tempt to evil, but test. You're not surprised, are you, that faith is tested? Perhaps we ought to be glad that it is, so that we know we've got the right thing. So it says, and it came to pass after these things, that God did test Abraham. said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I, here I am. Now then, he said, Take now thy son. But he didn't say that only, he said more. Thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. You see how it's piling on? God is speaking to that man and that son was the gift of God to him. We're told in Hebrews 11, he received him from the dead in figure because both he and his wife were as good as dead. Is he going to now act? Is he going to justify his belief by his works? But what a test. What a test. I suppose we can't conceive of that test being put upon anybody in this form today. But it may be put upon some in other forms which are more or less similar. But in these days, apparently, it was possible. Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And Moriah, you know, is where Jerusalem stands, the land of Moriah. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, do you need a stretch of imagination to believe that if one of the mountains round about Jerusalem was selected for this offering as only one, the very place where the Son of God was offered just outside the walls of Jerusalem, in that very place on that hill, a century afterwards. Of course, it doesn't matter if you don't believe it. Place doesn't matter. But the story seems to walk on all fours with it. Now, what did Abraham do? And there's one thing that strikes me as very significant. 
He got up early in the morning. And he saddled his ass. Now Abraham was a man of wealth. It says he was heavy in riches, as the Hebrew says. And in the ordinary way, his servant would have saddled his ass. But he did it himself. And Sarah's not mentioned. It would have been fatal, I'm sure, if Sarah had known what Abraham was after. You can quite understand, this is an extraordinary test. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for a burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the lad, with the ass, I and the lad will go un- yonder and worship now and come again unto you. He said that with that son at his side, that mountain waiting for him and the grim thought that he was going to be called upon to offer that son. But he said, we'll come again. Now the New Testament makes it very clear I think we'll give the New Testament the chance to speak in its own language, Hebrews 11, with regard to this fact. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. doesn't say when he was tempted, you notice. And he that received the promises, and they were all vested in Isaac, He that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Three words that are a title of Christ. Can you understand why this man Abraham was called the friend of God? He knew more of the heart of God than any amount of gospel preachers today. For he passed that way himself. He spared not his own son. And you know the very words which are used about this offering in Genesis is the very word that Paul uses in Romans the 8th chapter. Thou hast not withheld thy son from me, says God in Genesis. He spared not his only son, says Paul in Romans 8, same words. So here it is. And received the... uh, And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. But you say he didn't. But haven't you ever heard the expression even in this poor old world you take the will for the deed? If you haven't you've got it here. He was credited with doing that which at last he was stopped from doing. He was given the credit, the will for the deed. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting. Now here's the thing that Abraham stood for. Accounting that God was able to raise him up. And you remember when he stood there and looked at the stars at the, at the and about the number of them, the scripture says, he believed God. He didn't say whether it was Elohim or Jehovah or El Shaddai or anything else. He believed God that quickeneth the dead. 
That's the title that sustained Abraham. The quicker is the dead before he had his son, the quicker is the dead after he's got him. Friends, that's the zenith of our faith. It's the thing which the Romans said, oh, you can't tell me there's a resurrection of the dead. It's hopeless, hopeless. What a difference when you know Christ. What a difference when you know that he who died for us was raised again to die no more. And here's an anticipation of it. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now back to Genesis 22. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. Laid it upon him. Does it take your mind to the Gospels? They laid upon him the cross which he bore. And laid it upon him. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. Now here's the most blessed bit in it altogether. Retranslated in the Gospel terms. And they went, both of them, together. Don't forget, Isaac was a man. He may be called a lad in our, our version. But he could, have, he could have resisted Abraham very effectively. But they went both of them together and never countenance a doctrine which says that an angry father is placated by a gentle Jesus. It's absolutely untrue. It was that father that spared not his son who willingly came. They went both of them together. The father that sent his son to be the saviour of the world. Not that the saviour came in order to save men from the anger of a father. You read your book of the Revelation and you'll find the most awful passage to deal with wrath is the wrath of the Lamb. Imagine the wrath of the Lamb of God ultimately to be faced and endured. So now we have this chapter 22 they both went together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? If ever a man's heart was torn, it was torn here. He said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Whether that was wishful thinking or not, I can't penetrate, but he said it. And they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him upon the altar upon the wood. And the angel Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Notice where the name is repeated twice in the scriptures. It's always a very critical moment. Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know. Of course, from another point of view, we may argue that God knows the end from the beginning. 
Yes, that's so, but this is speaking after the manner of men and speaking to a man. Now I know thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Well, now my point this evening, you see, is this. That you cannot put James in opposition to Paul because they're not in opposition. Paul bases his justification by faith without works on Genesis 15 and is right. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And James says, yes, but wait a minute, there's another passage, Genesis 22. That faith was ultimately tested to the utmost limits. And he proved that the faith that he manifested in Genesis 15 was the genuine article. So we have the two, they're not in opposition. They're only confirming the one, the other. Let's look at one or two of these passages that we've spoken about as perfect in. We've looked at 2 Corinthians 7 where it says perfect in holiness, which doesn't mean making holiness better, but taking it to its logical end. Let's look at Hebrews 13, 21. Hebrews 13.21 Verse 20 Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect. In what way Lord? Make you perfect in every good work. Make you perfect to do his will. Make you perfect working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. This is the consequences of your faith being made manifest. In other words, Genesis 15 is the root in the ground invisible. And Genesis 22 is the fruit of the tree demonstrating the roots living and active. And so the two go together, no contradiction. They make a complete whole. Let's look at Peter while we're up this end. 1 Peter chapter 5.10 But the God of all grace, you see, Hebrews speaks about the God of peace, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, and Peter has much to say with enduring and suffering during the present interval, which manifested that they had the real thing. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect. Bring you to a real end and a conclusion. Establish, strengthen and settle you. Now we'll come back to James to see if he says anything of the same thing. Possibly you have anticipated this. If so, that's very good. Let's start reading the first chapter. James, a servant of God. And by the way, you do know, don't you, that James is, I don't know enough about the ramifications of the English language here, but the name here in the original is Jacob. But then, of course, you know that if you want the furniture of the time of King James, you get Jacobean. So, uh, there it is. This is Jacob. Jacob, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. I've said this before. This is a letter sent to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And they didn't have the postal facilities we have today, but it never gave back to James, not known. And yet I'm told by people that by this time the ten tribes are all lost and were wandering across Europe in order to become the people in this country and the people over in the United States. However, they're going to lift out those in the United States with all the mixture that is there. There's enough here to make a tribe over there. I don't know. When I was there, I come through a little town. Everybody black-eyed and everybody short. Polish people. Then we go somewhere else and the plane would settle down. They've got tulips growing, got a windmill and great big chaps. They were the Dutch people. And so you've got any amount of different nationalities all over the United States and they're all part of the Lost Ten Tribes. So they say. I don't know which is Ephraim and Manasseh. We're one and they're the other, but I don't think it matters. Here the Apostle didn't know anything about the Lost Ten Twelve tribes, neither did Paul. When he stood there on his trial, he said, I am in bonds, and unto this hope, our twelve tribes instantly serving God, day and night, hope to come. Well, there you are. They were there. So, he sends them greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfecting work, that ye may be perfect and entire, waiting, wanting nothing. One more word, because the light's gone up, and we find in chapter 5, verse 8, Be ye also patient, and in verse 10, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord. And he says in verse 11, Ye have heard of the patience of Job. Let patience have its perfecting work during this endurance. And so my thought this evening, just to gather it up, was this. That if only we'd consult the premises before we get to the argument about the conclusion, we shouldn't make these statements. Paul's premises are Genesis 15, faith only. James' premises are Genesis 22, works manifesting the faith is real. So there's no conflict. It's only the one fulfilling the other as root is fulfilled in fruit. May the Lord bless our ministry, our meditation upon these solemn matters. And where I have stumbled and fell and failed a little bit, I'm sure there will be extended to be some little element of understanding.